All right, again, there's notes in the back uh, by the two back doors if you need those. You are going to need a Bible. Uh, I'm going to give you a head start to the first verse that we're going to look at is Micah chapter 5. So some of you might need an extra moment or two to get to Micah. On Wednesday nights, our series is called The Bible. And you may notice that in the graphic we put on the screen and the graphic on your notes, uh, the subtitle of this is Doctrine and Hermeneutics. And so on the front end, we've been talking about the doctrine of the Bible. What is it that we believe about the Bible itself? We talked about inspiration, inerrancy, perspicuity, authority, necessity, sufficiency, power, uh, unity, and beauty. And then we made a pivot. And we're no longer talking about what is it that we believe about the Bible, but all of those things are foundational. For now, we're talking about how do we interpret the Bible? How do we make sense of the Bible? And these are the topics we've covered. Tonight, we're on prophecy and apocalypse. You can see we've got two more weeks. We're going to talk next week about idiom, metaphor, and hyperbole. And then the last week uh, about parables. I've said this the last several weeks, or I've said something to this effect the last several weeks. What we're doing on Wednesday nights, especially on this second half of this series when we talk about hermeneutics, this is not me serving up a nice piece of wood-planked, seared salmon for you to eat. This is me saying to you, here's how you catch a fish and here's how you start a fire. Now go make your own salmon. Figure it out for yourself. And that's not to say that we don't need teachers and we don't need books and we don't need podcasts and all sorts of different things. We need all of those things. But that's to say that we shouldn't be entirely dependent on others when it comes to reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible. There's some skills and some tools that we ought to have at our disposal. So tonight I want to start off talking about apocalyptic movies. Americans love, I mean love, apocalyptic movies. And there are several sub-genres of apocalyptic movies. And so I think I've got five sub-genres, okay? One type of apocalyptic movie is nature is out to get us. There's some sort of natural disaster. And there's tons of these, tons and tons. Armageddon, Snowpiercer, Day After Tomorrow, Volcano. It's either going to all burn up or we're all going to freeze or something terrible is going to happen. The earth is going to revolt against us. And that's going to be the end. And the whole tension of the movie is things are going to end. And we got to figure out a way to try to stop that. Here's another sub-genre. Aliens. The aliens are coming. And that's going to be the end of us. It may not be the end of the rock that we live on, but it's going to be the end of humanity. And so you can think about War of the Worlds, Independence Day, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, all sorts of uh, alien apocalyptic movies. Superhero movies, the comics, almost all of them center around there's a bad guy, a supervillain, and he's trying to destroy half of the earth or he's trying to destroy all of the earth or this is going to take over the whole world and we need these superheroes to save us. And if we don't have these superheroes save us, everything's going to end. That's the tension that drives the plot forward is if we don't have a savior, everything comes to some terrible climactic end. Technology, that's another type of apocalyptic movie. The robots are out to get us. 
and you know the Matrix and Terminator. Am I the only one that has seen Maximum Overdrive? Surely some of y'all have seen that. The diesel trucks and the machines, they get infested with some alien life thing and the machines are out to get us and we've got to fight the machines. Otherwise, it's all, all going to be over. Zombies are very popular today. The world is going to end because of zombies, and sometimes that's a disease, or sometimes that's a who knows whatever it is. There's all sorts of zombie stuff. A couple years ago, I was signing my kids up for a basketball camp at OC, and one of the summer camp options at OC for children was surviving the zombie apocalypse. And I said, I think we'll stick with basketball, so we just did basketball camp. There's one more genre I'll mention, and that would be post apocalyptic movies and there's a bunch of these these are the movies that say basically the apocalypse already happened like the end of the world came and went and now there's five people left on the earth or a hundred people left, whatever the remnant is left and they're trying to just survive in the rabble of whatever happened sometimes these movies explain this is what happened and this is went wrong sometimes they don't sometimes you just turn the movie on and you're in some sort of wasteland and it's a post-apocalyptic scene Hollywood keeps making these movies because we like to watch them. We like to think about what if it all ended and ended really, really badly. We don't just like that in the movie world or the TV world. We like it in the church world, in the Christian world. And so there's a couple of guys who in the 90s and the 2000s made just short of a zillion, that'd be zillion with a Z, zillion dollars writing these books. And if you don't have copies of these books, just go to a garage sale in West Texas or an estate sale. There's a whole set waiting for you. It'll cost like five bucks. The Left Behind books, there's like, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 20 of them, 10 of them, I don't know, whatever. And then there's like 40 kids books. And they wrote all these books. They're fictional books, fictional books, fictional books about how the world was going to end. They are fictional books, but people read these books like they're just history, like it's straight out of the Bible, and this is exactly how it's going to go down, these fictional books that these guys wrote. And if you don't like fictional books, there's plenty, plenty, plenty. It's a never-ending stream of, quote, air quotes, Nonfiction, air quote, nonfiction books about the end of the world. And I just Googled up uh, Christian Bible prophecy and I got all sorts of stuff here A to Z guide on prophecy, the future uh, awakening or advance of Bible prophecy, a future according to Bible prophecy, the end of America. America's in a lot of these books, every prophecy about Jesus. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I found a lot of them as I was just scrolling through the results about predictions about this guy in the Middle East that is key to Bible prophecy. Well, guess what? He's dead now, and nothing happened. This guy who lived in Russia, this guy's the key to Bible prophecy. You gotta know about this guy. Well, he's long gone, and there's another guy now. And it's just a never-ending stream of books. All of these books, all of these movies about prophecy and specifically, a lot of them about apocalypse in the Bible. And so, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. I'm not telling you to have a book burning with your fictional Left Behind series. I'm just telling you, we're going to talk about some basic rules 
for understanding Bible prophecy and then understanding apocalypse. And if you want to think about it this way, you can think Bible prophecy is sort of the big umbrella category and apocalypse is a sub-genre underneath prophecy. So let's talk about prophecy first. R.C. Sproul says this, handling predictive prophecy, both from the New Testament and the Old, is one of the most abused forms of biblical interpretation. People abuse this type of literature maybe more than any other type of literature in the Bible. There's a couple of ways that you can do this. One way you can do it is to be a naturalist, just to be sort of a a secular naturalist person and you don't believe that there's a God up there, you don't believe that there are supernatural things that happen, you're just confined to, to nature and what you can see and what you can observe. And if you're a naturalist, you don't even believe in prophecy. You read the book of Daniel and you say, well, Daniel didn't write that book before all those things happened. Daniel just lived after those things happened and somebody named Daniel or somebody used the name Daniel and they wrote it about stuff that had already taken place and they made it look like it was predictive prophecy. That would be one way to misuse it. The other way to misuse prophecy in the Bible that is very common in an American setting is to put America at the center of every Bible prophecy And to assume that you can decode every single person and event and place and location and symbol and all of it. And you can get it all figured out. Both, both really, really bad mistakes. So, let's get clear about prophets in the Bible. In the Bible, prophets were two things. Proclaimers and predictors. They proclaimed things that were true, and they predicted things that were to come. Now, when we think prophet, most of our brains just default go to this second word, the predictor. Like they're a magic eight ball walking around, and you see Jeremiah on the street, and you just shake him on the shoulders, and you get an answer to what's going to happen tomorrow. Like that's what these guys did. They just predicted the future all the time. They didn't do that most of the time. Most of the time, what the prophets did is they went around and they said, you know what the Lord has said in the law? He said, if you do this, this is going to happen. And you're doing this, so guess what? It's going to happen. And it's not like they're pulling some fantastic prediction of the future out of thin air. They're just reading the book of Deuteronomy. And they're saying, look, God said if you do this, this is the consequence. So stop doing it. God says if you'll repent, this is what he'll do, so you should repent. It wasn't really predictions of the future all the time. Sometimes they were just proclaiming this is what God had said. They also made predictions. And when we talk about prophecy tonight, we're really kind of focusing on that second part. It's not the only thing the prophets did, but we are thinking, okay, they predicted things that were to come. How do we make sense of that? Let me give you three words of caution about interpreting Bible prophecy. Here's the first one. Sometimes Biblical prophecy is fulfilled literally, and sometimes biblical prophecy is fulfilled more broadly. Sometimes it's a literal fulfillment, and sometimes it's, we'll just say, more broad. And I put the dots up there to say I didn't put all the verses up on the screen. You've got them in your notes. The first one I want to look at is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Guess what? That literally happened. Jesus was really born in Bethlehem. It wasn't like they were in Nazareth and they were spending the weekend at the Bethlehem Inn and Spa and Mary had Jesus there and it was kind of a technicality. They were really in Bethlehem. It literally happened just like the prophecy said it would. But flip over to the right, look at the book of Malachi, very end of the Old Testament. There's a prophecy. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. That's a prophecy. So we start looking for the fulfillment in the New Testament, and we think, well, who could it be? How is that going to be fulfilled? Is that going to be fulfilled literally? Remember Elijah rode to heaven on the chariot. Is he going to ride the chariot back? Is that how? Is it going to be a literal fulfillment, actual Elijah? Or is it going to be a more broad fulfillment? And so you start reading in the Gospels, and you find uh, Jesus saying, Elijah has come. He's come. And then you find people talking to a guy named John the Baptist, and they say, are you Elijah? And he says, what? No, I'm John. You got me mixed up with somebody else. But then there's people talking to Jesus, and they're trying to figure the whole thing out, and Jesus basically says, if you can receive it, he is the Elijah to come. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Is it a literal fulfillment in the sense that Elijah himself rode the flaming chariot and the whirlwind back to the earth? No. But is it true fulfillment of the prophecy? Yes. He came and he looks like Elijah and he talks like Elijah and he eats like Elijah and he dresses like Elijah and he preaches like Elijah and he comes in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. He is the fulfillment. It's not a literal fulfillment. It's what we might just say is a a bit more broad fulfillment. How about Uh, Look at the gospel of Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Look at this prophecy. Luke 3, 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, speaking of John the Baptist here, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So he's quoting the book of Isaiah. It's a prophecy about John the Baptist, and he says, All the valleys will be lifted up, and all the mountains will be brought low, and all the crooked roads will be made straight. And if you live in West Texas, you say, I think it happened. There's, uh, there's no valleys and there's no mountains and the roads are pretty straight. So that looks like a literal fulfillment. But if you get out of West Texas, you realize, oh, it's not like that everywhere. There are still mountains and there's still valleys and there's still crooked roads. Was it fulfilled in John the Baptist? It was. Does that mean the geotechnic plates of the earth are going to realign and move? And that's not, We're not looking for a literal Fulfillment, And this is one of the things when we're talking about all these genres. Sometimes prophecy gets mixed in with poetry. 
and they sort of all get twisted up. And sometimes uh, letters get mixed in with poetry, and all these genres start to mix up, and it can be a little bit complicated. When you look at this, you say, we're not looking for a literal fulfillment. What it's saying is the ground will become level, the roads will be, be straight, there will be line of sight, there will be clarity. John's job is to bring clarity about the Messiah, to get anything that might confuse you out of the way and to say, that's the one, that's the guy, that's his job. John did that. He looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he said that, the earth didn't start moving. But this prophecy is fulfilled. He's making it clear and he's making it direct and he's making it straight. Jesus is the Messiah. One more I'll let you look up on your own, just thinking about this literal and broad fulfillment. Isaiah. In one place, the prophet Isaiah is talking about the future. And in one place he says, the lion will eat straw in the future. The lion will eat straw. In another place he says, there will be no lions in the future. Which is it, Isaiah? Are we going to have lions eating straw or are we not going to have any more lions? You understand the point that he's talking about when... It, Either of those passages is not a zoological point. It's a point about the safety and the security of God's people, that these dangers, these threats to God's people are going to be removed. And we're not to the future yet, so we don't know exactly how the Lord's going to fulfill that prophecy and what it might look like. But you look at those two prophecies on the face of it, and you say, well, it can't be literal in both of them. Lions eating straw or no lions... It seems like one of those is maybe going to be literal and one is broad or maybe both of them might be broad. So literal fulfillment, broad fulfillment. Caution number two. In the Old Testament, judgment prophecies were almost always conditional rather than unconditional. Not always, but almost always. And the classic example of this is Jonah. Go back and read what Jonah actually said when he finally got to Nineveh. He did not tell anyone to repent. He said, you got 40 days and God's going to blow you up. The city's going to be overthrown. That's all he said. 40 days and the city's going to be overthrown. He did not say to them, at least as far as we know in the text, if you repent, God's probably going to take it easy on you. Now, he knew that God was going to do that, right? It's one of the reasons he didn't want to go in the first place. And then when God was lenient, he said, oh, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were compassionate. Forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I knew you were going to let these people off the hook if they repented. It wasn't part of his proclaimed message, at least as we read it in the text, but there was this implied allowance for repentance and God's mercy. And you can read about that, for example, in Jeremiah 18. We're going to come to that in a few Sundays. This idea that if they relent or if they repent, that God will relent from the judgment that he had promised. One more caution. Bible prophecy, biblical prophecy, often has an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. And maybe the clearest example of this, although there's a lot of them, is Isaiah 7. So in Isaiah 7, there's a prophecy. And it's a prophecy you've probably heard before. Isaiah is speaking 
to Ahaz. The Lord is speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah, and he says, ask for a sign, and Ahaz isn't interested in even talking to the Lord, really. He says, I don't want a sign. And uh, God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign. Verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a sign, it's a prophecy for Ahaz. You say, okay, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. How was that prophecy fulfilled? Well, most immediately it was fulfilled in the very next chapter. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, I went to the prophetess. She conceived and bore a son. The Lord said to me, call his name Maharshalah Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. That reference to the king of Assyria loops back to chapter 7. It's obviously the initial fulfillment of that prophecy. But it's not the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. And if you keep reading in Isaiah, you come to Isaiah 9. And there's this hope that there will be no more gloom and that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the later time he'll make glorious. And look what it says down in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called, not Maharshalah Hashbaz. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's pointing to Jesus. Mary is the virgin who conceives and bears a child. There's an initial fulfillment, and there's, there's an ultimate fulfillment. This happens all the time in Bible prophecy. Not in every single one, but my expression is intended to be hyperbolic to say it happens a lot. It's very, very common. You find it in Matthew 24 when Jesus is walking out of the temple with his disciples and he's, they've talked about how glorious it is and how beautiful it is. And Jesus says, look, all these stones are going to be knocked down. Not going to be one left on the other. And that blows their minds. And they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, when is this going to happen? Question one. And what will be the sign of your coming? They ask him two questions. When's the temple going to go down? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus starts to answer both of those questions in just sort of a weaved answer that goes back and forth between both of those questions. There's some immediate fulfillment in what he's talking about, and there's some ultimate fulfillment in what he's talking about. Sometimes Bible scholars call this the telescopic nature of Bible prophecy, and you can think about it like this. If you look in a telescope, you look up in the night sky, you see all those dots of light. And from our vantage point on earth, we look up there and we say, man, look at all those stars just smashed up there together. From our vantage point, they all look really, really close. It just looks like a black sheet and there's all these dots on it. But you know, if you were to go up there, they're not close at all. They're really, really big. Way bigger than they look from here. And they're really, really, really far away from each other. And from this vantage point, they look close. But when you get up upon them, you realize, oh, there's some distance there. You've had this experience when you drive from West Texas towards New Mexico. I tried to find a good picture of the mountains. I know that's not New Mexico. Couldn't find a great picture I wanted to put up. But you're driving from West Texas to New Mexico, and the first thing you see is like a, a gray, purplish cloud on the horizon. Then you get a little bit closer and you can see some features in it. And you can see some lines within that gray, purplish 
mass. Then you get a little bit closer and you can say, okay, there's all sorts of different peaks in that. And at some point you look at it and you say, it looks like one big mountain just going across. But when you finally get there, you realize, oh, well, there's a mountain here and then there's a valley and there's a mountain here and then there's a gap and that peak is actually way far further than the front peak. They're all spread out. But from a distance, it appears that they're all right there at the same place. Bible prophecy often works like that. Jesus starts talking about these things that are going to happen in the future. And from the initial vantage point, it looks like he's just describing one scene. But when you start to get up on some of those details, you realize, well, some of those scenes are now, and some of those scenes are going to come a little bit later. There's a, an immediate and an ultimate fulfillment. So how do we do this? Let me give you some guidelines. I'll give you these quick. Number one, understand the context What's the setting? What's the date approximately? Who's the author? Who are they writing to? When Isaiah is speaking about this child to be born, it's really helpful to know what's going on with the king of Assyria in real time, to know something about the context. It helps you understand the prophecy. Second, determine the original implications before you try to apply the prophecy today. So when you're looking at Matthew 24, you say, look at Sounds like some of these things happened in 70 AD when the Romans marched in and knocked the temple down. Maybe not everything happened, but some of these things have happened. So you're looking for the original implication. Third, you expect to find figurative language. Sometimes poetry gets mixed in with prophecy. Sometimes apocalypse gets mixed in with prophecy. And then last, decide whether or not the fulfillment has happened. Has there been an immediate fulfillment? Has there been the ultimate fulfillment? Might, be, might we be waiting for the ultimate fulfillment still? And then with all of that, I would just say, be really careful with Bible prophecy. Be really careful with it. For thousands of years, people have opened their mouth thinking that they had figured out prophecy and decoded this and decoded that, and history has proved them wrong over and over and over And over again. And you might end up actually being a false prophet. If you go around talking too big and too loud about, I've got all this figured out, and this is this, and this is that, and this is how it's all going to go, and this guy in the Middle East is this guy, and you connect all these dots like a crazy cop in in the office with the strings all over the pictures, and you've got this weird thing up there, you might just wake up in 10 years and the whole thing might be junk. So just be careful. People have made a lot of mistakes dealing with prophecy. So if that makes you cautious, how do you like this? Apocalypse, R.C. Sproul. Of all the forms of prophecy, the apocalyptic form is the most difficult to handle. This is really tricky stuff when it comes to Bible interpretation. And we're just going to be honest about some of the challenges here. If you want to know where you find apocalypse in the Bible, uh, you find it in the book of Ezekiel, places in Ezekiel. You find it in the book of Daniel, not all of Daniel, but parts of Daniel, especially the second half. You find it in the book of Revelation, not all of Revelation, but a lot of Revelation contains apocalypse. You find it on the lips of Jesus. You find a little bit of it in Isaiah. Uh, You find some in Zechariah, sort of sprinkled throughout the Bible in different places. Apocalypse is not the same as prophecy. And I put a chart in your notes, and I'm going to put it on the screen, and I just want you to see some of the differences. Prophecies on the left, apocalypse on the right. With Bible prophecy, 
usually there is repentance from sin that's being sought. The prophet is saying, you need to repent. And many times with apocalypse, the author is saying, yeah, it's too late, you're dead. It's too late. God's had enough. There's not a call to repent. It's just saying it's, it, it's coming and it's over and you're in trouble. In prophecy, the emphasis is usually on how God is displeased with evil, wicked, sinful people. But in apocalypse, the focus is often that there are righteous people looking around the world saying everything is terrible and it is just bad, bad, bad. People are displeased with evil and they're wanting God to intervene. The prophets call for people to repent. The apocalyptic writers say to the faithful, just hang on a little bit longer. They're not telling the bad guys to repent. They're just telling the good guys, hang on. Hang on, God's coming. Something's gonna happen. The prophets talk about divine intervention by natural or human means. So many times the prophets would not say, there's an army of angels that's going to come wipe you out. They would say, the Babylonians are going to come wipe you out. There's a human army that's going to march on you, and it is going to be really, really bad. But in apocalyptic writing, there's a supernatural element to it uh, that's a little bit different. The prophets usually stand up and say, thus says the Lord. Right? We've talked about that in Jeremiah already. These are the words of the Lord. This is what God says, and it's just direct speech to the people. But in Apocalypse, there's usually an intermediary. There's an angel many times involved in giving the revelation. And a lot of times what is said in Apocalypse leaves you saying, what? What? What does that have to do with anything? It's often not direct like the prophets were. Uh, Prophecy, there's a prediction of imminent and future, immediate And ultimate, there's that dual focus. With apocalypse, there's a a cosmic final solution to how history is going to come to an end. So these are different genres. This is a quote in your notes. The English word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apokalupto. means to reveal or to unveil. Apocalyptic literature is a genre of Jewish Jewish literature characterized by its use of symbolic imagery to reveal God's mysterious providential workings behind the scenes and his coming plans for the future. That's Rob Plummer, uh, 40 Questions book. There's a lot of this, and there's a lot of it that's not in the Bible. Just Jews wrote this sort of stuff. From about 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D., they wrote all kinds of stuff that falls in this category of apocalyptic. Let me give you a few thoughts here. Apocalyptic imagery is not intended to be taken literally, but it is intended to be taken seriously. Okay, when I say don't take it all, the imagery, literally, what many Americans hear is, oh, you, you just can ignore it. Then it's not that important. It's just, that's, we're not saying ignore it. We're not saying it's not important. It is important, but it's not intended to be taken literally. You see this, for example, in the book of Joel. If you're in Isaiah still, you can flip over to the right. If you make it to Hosea, you're almost there. Hosea, Joel, if you go to Amos, turn back. Joel 2. Look at Joel 2, verse 28. It says, it's going to come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. That prophecy gets quoted 
in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And Peter and the apostles say, hey, that happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out on us and we spoke in tongues and it was amazing. That was the fulfillment. But look what Joel says in the very next verse, verse 30. There will be wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Oh my goodness. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's apocalyptic writing. It's apocalyptic imagery. When Luke says that that prophecy was fulfilled, he does not say anything about the moon turning to blood and there was a pillar of smoke and fire. And He doesn't say all those things literally happened. Joel wasn't expecting those things to literally happen. It's apocalyptic imagery. It's this type of writing, and they take these stock images. For example, if I were to have a discussion with you about politics and I put up a picture of an elephant and a donkey, you would know we're not talking about a trip to the zoo. Maybe we are talking about a trip to the zoo. But you would know, you would know that those symbols have meaning. And when the apocalyptic writers start to use these symbols, they're not necessarily talking about blood just showing up out of nowhere, right? They're using these images that all of these apocalyptic writers would talk about to mean and to suggest different things. And that's true with the Joel prophecy here. Another thought, do not be discouraged if you're confused by apocalyptic passages. Maybe one of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible for interpreters, for Christians, for people reading, is Daniel 8.27. Daniel had an apocalyptic vision from the Lord. Had this vision. God revealed these things to him. And this is what it says in Daniel 8.27. I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick for some days Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. That's about the wisest guy who's ever walked on the earth. And he has an apocalyptic vision, and he says, it literally made me sick. And when I finally could go back to work, I was completely appalled by what I saw, and I didn't understand it on my own. So if you're studying Revelation or the end of Daniel or Zechariah, and you just think, I have no idea what this is talking about. Daniel's up there looking down, I guess, saying, yeah, me too. It's crazy stuff. It's hard to take in. Don't be discouraged. Here's some guidance, okay? When you think about specifically the book of Revelation, because that's the the big book with apocalypse. Book of Revelation actually contains three genres, epistle, prophecy, and apocalypse. I'll let you look these up. Revelation 1.1 says, this is apocalypse, right at the beginning. This is apocalyptic writing. And then you get to chapter 2 to 3, and it's epistles. It's letters. And you interpret those not like apocalypse. You interpret them like letters, like you would interpret Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. You just read it and... Most of them are reasonably straightforward. Then you get to the end of the book, chapter 22, and it says that this book contains words of prophecy. And so you look at it and you say, all right, there's a lot of poetry in there. There's songs and there's epistles and there's apocalypse and there's prophecy and it's all just kind of rolled up into one single book and you're trying to make sense of it. So you just got to be aware there's a lot of stuff in Revelation, a lot of moving parts. Second, 
when you read Revelation, you have to think through what is the framework for interpretation that I'm going to use. You can't just wade into the book like it's a free-for-all and just say, well, I'm going to read this verse like this, and I'm going to read this verse literal, and I'm going to read this verse in this way, and I'm going to apply this verse here. You've got to have some sort of overarching plan for how you're going to make sense of the book. There's four options, okay? The preterist option says the book of Revelation was only for the original audience. It really has nothing to say to you. It was all for those churches on the front end that got the letters. So you read it like you read Old Testament books. They were not for you either, really. But you have to understand it in terms of the original audience. The historicist view says you start in the beginning of the book with the beginning of church history, and then there's a timeline that unfolds, and the game is to figure out where are we at in the history now. Where do, are we in chapter 15? Are we in chapter 18? Are we back in chapter 11? Where are we at in this timeline? That's the historicist. The idealist, and I'm showing my hand here by putting it in bold, is saying to you, these are things that tend to occur and reoccur throughout human history. These are things going on perhaps behind the scenes that happen over and over and over again. I think there's something to that. And then the futurist view, this is pretty popular, especially in West Texas, just says it has nothing to say back in the first century. It's all about the end. It's all about the very last days when Jesus comes back. The whole book is about the very, 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 very end of human history. That's a pretty popular position. Um, you're going to have to pick a framework for how you make sense of the book. And I was talking with some guys earlier today. There's really smart people that take all four of those different approaches. So maybe the best way is to kind of take a little bit of all of them on some level and to say, you know what? This book has to mean something to the people who got it originally. It, like, it was written to them. It's got to have some application to their lives. But clearly there's some stuff that's in the future also, there's some stuff that hasn't happened yet. We're not in the millennium yet. So there's some stuff that's still out there. But there's also some stuff that seems to just kind of happen over and over and over again throughout history. Old Testament history, New Testament history, world history. And there seems to be some timeless stuff there. So maybe you just sort of take all those. A couple more thoughts. Symbolic images and numbers should not be interpreted literally, but they should be taken seriously. There's a lot of numbers and there's a lot of images in the book of Revelation. You don't have to take all of those just completely literally. You do have to take them seriously. And you have to study and you have to think through what does this mean and what do smart people think that this means. Next, the book is not intended, I don't believe, to be read chronologically. Now, there's a broad chronological sort of unfolding in the book. Right? It ends with the end. So I understand it's moving in a direction. But you don't read the book as if saying, this happens first, then this, 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 all the way through. That's how the, the left behind guys tend to read the book. They just kind of start at one point and then they just start going and it's this, 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 all right in order. I don't think that's how Revelation is written at all. I think Revelation is written more like a slinky. It just goes in circles and kind of says the same thing over and over and over again. 
and he kind of moves on to this, but then he circles back to this, and he moves on to this, and then he circles back to this, and he moves on to this, and there's some movement to it, but he's kind of just moving back and forth in circles. Isaiah does that. Jeremiah does that. A lot of the prophets do that. That's not uncommon in the Bible. Uh, Here's maybe the most important thing for Revelation. Revelation contains 405 verses with a minimum of 278 allusions to the Old Testament. Minimum, because that's the smallest number I could find somebody throw out there. There's other Bible scholars, New Testament scholars, Greek scholars that throw out numbers a lot higher than that. But even if it's only 278, how can you make sense of the book of Revelation if every other verse and then some is talking about the Old Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. And people today, you know people like this, people get crazy with the book of Revelation. They get so excited about studying Revelation. Nobody's crazy and excited about studying Leviticus or Zechariah or Haggai. Like, You're going to have to read the Old Testament. The whole thing, Revelation, is talking about the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. If you don't have any sense of what's going on in the Old Testament, you will never have any sense of what's going on in the book of Revelation. So I'll end with a story here. Uh, When I was a pastor in Frankfurt, I was discipling two guys. Um, one of them, they were both new believers. One of them was a little bit younger than me, and one of them was old enough to be my granddad. And they both come from pretty rough backgrounds, and they were new Christians. We were meeting for discipleship. And while we were meeting during that time, every house in Frankfort, Kentucky, got a flyer mailed to them, full color, thick paper, very glossy. And it wasn't these, but it looked something like this. Okay, had all these pictures on it and talked about Bible prophecy. And I, I actually think Obama was on there somewhere. And it's all this stuff and things were blowing up in the background. So all this imagery and symbolism. And it was basically an invitation. Come to the Holiday Inn on such and such day for a prophecy conference. My two guys got these flyers in the mail and they could not have been more excited to go study anything in the entire world. I said, we have got to go to this prophecy conference. This is going to be the greatest thing. We're going to figure out all the keys to world history at this prophecy conference. So I said, let's go. So we went and ate Chinese food buffet. We drove across town. We went to the Holiday Inn. We sat down in the conference room with an interesting cross-section of folks from Frankfort, Kentucky. And this guy stood up, and he spent about two hours... Going back and forth, he would read a headline from the news, and then he would read a verse. Every verse he read was from apocalyptic literature. I'm going to read a headline, and then I'm going to read a verse. And then I'm going to read a headline, and I'm going to read a verse. And they were all sort of had this eerie correspondence. And by the end of the night, what he was trying to say is, this is what his point was, I'm probably not going to finish this talk before Jesus comes back. Probably not going to happen. He mercifully, after a couple hours, finished. And that was about 15 years ago. People have looked at apocalyptic writing and prophecy in the Bible for years and decades and centuries and millennia 
and thought that they had it figured out. We are not, listen, we are not the first generation of Christians who thought, surely we're living in the last days. Surely it's not going to get worse than this. Surely Jesus is coming back. Surely prophecy is being fulfilled right now as we speak in this development or that development. And in the end, a lot of this kind of ends up being like apocalyptic movies you watch. You watch these apocalyptic movies and you get worried the world is going to end and then it doesn't. And you go home. Like, oh, that was close. We blew the asteroid up. Way to go. That was awesome. Thank you, Bruce Willis, for staying up there and pushing the button. That was fantastic. You died, but the rest of us got to live. And the threat just sort of vaporizes and goes away. It reminds me of my wife's biggest pet peeve. I like sports talk, radio, TV, it doesn't matter. And I like to listen to people talk about a game that hasn't happened yet. And my wife walks in the room or gets in the car and she says, this is, so, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. Who cares? They don't know what's going to happen. Why would you? One of them's going to be wrong or both of them are going to be wrong and they're arguing about it and you get emotionally invested in it. Who cares? Just listen to them after the game. I say, well, after the game, I know what happens. I like, this is what I like. Well, it's ridiculous. Look. The Christian bookstore is filled with books, fiction and nonfiction, just like that. So I'm not telling you don't think about it, and I'm not telling you don't study it, and I'm not telling you don't read it. I'm just saying study it and look at it and read it like a sane person, and don't read it with the assumption that you or me or us, that we're the first people in 2,000 years of church history to get all the secrets of prophecy and apocalypse decoded. And rather than worry about all these little details of history and how they equate today, just from time to time, step back and focus on the big picture, which is God promised to send his son, and he sent him. And he promised that his son would die, and he died. And he promised that he would rise three days later, and he rose. And he promised that he would come back, and he hasn't yet. But we believe that he will. And we can talk and we can argue and we can debate about when that's going to happen and how that's going to happen. But just hold all those specific things a little bit loosely and with a little bit of humility to say, maybe I don't have it all figured out, but I have faith that God's going to keep his word. And that in the end, whether I had it all figured out or not, it's going to make sense and God's going to be faithful to his people.